Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Well, welcome to FIA Speaks, the Global Markets Podcast. In this exciting episode, we're honored to have fellow CFTC commissioners Don Stump and Dan Berkowitz. We're recording this episode in July of 2020, as this is the month that marks the 10th anniversary of the passage and signing of the landmark Dodd-Frank Act. Um, Our two guests had substantial but different roles in the formation of the legislation that ultimately became the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protections Act. That's why they shortened it to Dodd-Frank. That's a long title. But Commissioner Don Stump, who was involved in that, has served as CFTC commissioner since 2018 and was a member of both the House and Senate Agriculture Committees, where large portions of the derivatives section of the Dodd-Frank Act was originated. Uh, Dan Berkowitz was a Senate staffer for Senator Levin at the beginning of the Dodd-Frank drafting and also served as general counsel at the CFTC during the time when the CFTC was implementing this important legislation and was given oversight responsibilities over the swaps markets. So welcome both of you uh, commissioners to FIA Speaks. It's hard to believe that it's been 10 years since the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act. So I wanna start with sort of a basic question, which was what was your role and involvement 10 years ago in the passage of Dodd-Frank, and I'll start with Dawn. Thanks, Walt. Um, Well, I was the lead derivatives policy staffer for the Republicans at the Senate Agriculture Committee, which, as you know, has jurisdictional oversight of the CFTC. And Dan? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Walt. Uh, As you mentioned, um, during the financial crisis, I was... um, working for Senator Carl Levin, who was chairman of the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. In May of uh, 2009, um, then-chairman Gary Gensler um, asked me to come over and join the CFTC as general counsel, uh, and I began that job in June of 2009, and we immediately began working on um, the administration's uh, proposal to Congress, which eventually uh, Congress uh, worked into the Dodd-Frank Act. And just just so people understand, the CFTC was working hand-in-hand with Congress, right, to to help um, suggest things and to help in crafting that legislation. Very, very much so. Uh, The uh, Treasury Department sent up a legislative package Uh, In August of 2009, the CFTC um, had a significant role in drafting Title VII of that package, which was the uh, title that became Title VII of the Dodd-Frank Act, the regulation of of swaps of of derivatives. So we um, assisted the administration in uh, the preparation of its legislative uh, package to send up to the Hill. And then when the Hill um, uh, began considering that legislation and throughout the legislative process, we provided uh, technical assistance uh, to the Congress during their consideration of that, that act. And Don, you, you were very involved in the crafting of that legislation, but you and Dan have had a long relationship even before his going down to the CFTC. Remind our listeners of how long you guys have known each other. Well, I believe I first met Dan in 2007, long before, well, it seems like it was long before the financial crisis because we were doing very different things at the time. And um, Dan and I actually worked across the hall from one another, but we had never, I think, formally been introduced. And there was an occasion to work on a CFTC-related legislative matter during the development of the Farm Bill. And so I um, met Dan. We worked on the legislation, this provision of the legislation together. 
And to be quite frank, I've never only met someone so quickly to come to believe that they were, um, they, they made me a better staffer. I mean, Dan, um, not just because we've maintained a friendship, but I genuinely believe that anytime Dan challenged my viewpoints on something and I challenged his viewpoints on something, we ultimately ended up in, with a better product in the end. And, and I always appreciate Dan's willingness not only to challenge me, but also to listen to, to what I have to offer. So, so I think we've worked really well together over a number of years. And I, I remember at the time of the passage of Dodd-Frank 10 years ago, um, it's, it's important to remember the context in which all this was going on. I mean, I, I think, you know, at the Wall Street, we were still in a pretty deep recession. Uh, the economy was. Uh, public opinion of Wall Street was at historic lows. Um, you know, remind our listeners uh, the difficult state of, you know, the country, Congress, the markets at the time of the passage. And how did that influence the legislative process? And, and, and I don't know if, Dan, if you want to start on that one. Well, I think while you characterized it, um, characterized it properly, we were really in the, in the midst, midst of, a, of a crisis. It was a crisis of confidence in the economic system. And it affected the real economy uh, very, very significantly. There was, uh, uh, as I recall, uh, with memory of ten year, ten years old now, but I recall a real consensus that that things needed to be done to get the country back on the right track, uh, and that there was comprehensive reform needed. Um, there was a lot. Uh, there was disagreement on exactly what those reforms uh, were. But there was absolutely no doubt and there was no lack of commitment on, on both sides um, to uh, legislatively to address the issues, get the country back, uh, uh, the financial system back on the right track, restore confidence in the financial system, get the regulatory system uh, in such a, a state that uh, the, there were appropriate safeguards. And, and yet at the same time, uh, preserve the financial system's ability to foster capital formation, e economic growth, and ultimately jobs. So there was this uh, a very strong uh, bipartisan consensus at the national level uh, to, to, to do this and to do it quickly. And when you think about how quickly Dodd-Frank was done uh, from August of 2009 to 10 years, uh, July 21st, 2010, it was quite, quite remarkable uh, that it was done at that very and Don, do you do you recall the context and the political pressure? I suppose will you be the word uh, to try to get this done quickly and to get the economy back on track? Absolutely, and I agree with what Commissioner Berkovitz said. It, it, it frankly was um, there were differences of opinion as to how to arrive at the solution, but there was bipartisan support for. Um, responding to what was unfolding. And, and my recollection is that during the two years, the two years between 2008 and 2010, when we began evaluating the crisis and working on the legislation, um, the crisis was actually still unfolding. And sometimes we forget that. And, and so my recollection is that what that meant was there were a number of policy ideas that were floated and then abandoned. And we went back to the drawing board and we tried again but because we were learning more about the impacts of the crisis at the exact same time we were trying to design the solution. And it was sort of like trying to stabilize a critical patient without fully knowing all the underlying health issues. And all the family members were in the emergency room at the same time. And so it was, it was really um, unlike any other legislation I've ever worked on. When you mentioned bipartisanship, you know, the Ag Committee traditionally has been a very bipartisanship-driven committee of the Senate on a variety of farm policies, but also even the Commodity Exchange Act, which oversees the CFTC. So uh, at the time, I, I know the G20 came out, I think, with some strong recommendations as part of their Pittsburgh Accord uh, on what should be done to fix the crisis. Uh, was, was there bipartisanship uh, throughout the process? I know, I'm sure at times there were differences, but was there a sense of we need to do this together to get this done? And how did that hold up during this whole crisis? Dan? So, oh, or, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Don. Go ahead. No, no, Dan, you go. 
well, it, to, to a certain extent, I mean, I, I found um, that uh, the work, uh, I was at the CHC during the legislative process, and from our perspective at the agency, um, we provided uh, technical assistance on both sides of the aisle, and uh, I, I think every all the all the uh, questions we got and the involvement we had uh, was was we were nonpartisan in, in this, and and there was uh, serious efforts all around. I, I think, and and maybe uh, Don can speak to this. When when you got down to some of the votes, uh, ultimately the votes, I, I think there were some votes that were more party ultimately things getting out of committee and on the floor um, got more uh, party lines and, and were closer along that but I think uh, as far as the work day-to-day work um, people uh, were able to, to work uh, without having that contaminate the working process it wasn't it was um, there were partisan votes, but I, I would describe the, the process of, of working, um, at least from my perspective at the CFTC, as, as uh, the party elements weren't really a, a factor in it. But uh, maybe uh, Don uh, being up on the hill um, also has a perspective on that. Um, yes, yes, Dan, absolutely. I agree with much of what you said. I, I... I do believe, so since the House and the Senate each had to pass their own version of Dodd-Frank and, and the Title VII specifically, I believe that the Title VII product that the House produced was developed in a bipartisan way, which is very common to the Ag Committee's approach. Um, unfortunately, the Senate was unable to arrive at such a conclusion, which was personally disappointing for me because after two years of negotiating a bipartisan derivatives title that that was the product of some very difficult compromises between the Republicans and the Democrats on the Senate Agriculture Committee. Um, It was determined that each camp should go their own way. And and quite frankly, this is the an outcome that you have to account for anytime you are making compromises and working with someone with divergent viewpoints from your own, that, that in the end, you may not be able to arrive at a consensus position. But in this case, I believe that it was largely a result of the fact that while the derivatives title was an important component of the overall legislation, it was just one piece of the puzzle. And while I think the team I worked on was able to add value to the piece of the package that we were working on, which was Title VII, the reality is that many Republicans were going to find it difficult to support the bigger package um, due to the manner in which it was expanding the government and, and various things that were completely unrelated to the derivatives title. Well, we're, we're now a decade out from its passage and implementation, and you're both now living with this act um, a decade later and very well positioned to give a a grade and give some thought to Dodd-Frank 10 years later, especially with the recent market volatility surrounding the COVID-19 crisis. So I think just be curious from your personal perspectives, you know, how do you think Dodd-Frank has stood the test of time? And I'll start with Dawn. So I am happy to admit that even in those areas of Dodd-Frank that I harbored some skepticism in 2010, it's largely been replaced with an appreciation for how well many of the derivatives provisions have been implemented and embraced and applied. And I think this is an outcome I, I, I actually don't think would have been possible without tremendous coordination between the regulator, in this case the CFTC, and the marketplace. So everyone should be commended for the amount of work that was put into getting us to where we are today and and ensuring that the changes that were made and implemented were in fact as successful as they have been. And Dan, your thoughts on how it's held up? No, I would would agree with everything Commissioner Stump just said. Uh, I think it's held up remarkably well. And um, Tim Geithner, who was the, uh, the um, uh, Secretary of, of Treasury um, back in, uh, from 2009 to several years uh, um, during the Dodd-Frank uh, years, um, and he, he wrote a book called Stress Test. But I remember um, listening to one of his speeches, and he was talking about the um, 
key to the financial system and, and a lot of what we do is is confidence and and why do you have uh, a potential collapses there there due to lack of confidence in the system and I think that dodd Frank has really done gone a long way in building up confidence in, in our financial system and we had events uh previously um single firm events, um, long-term capital management, um, collapse of Lehman Brothers, um, potential single, single firm events threatening systemic collapse. And what we've just seen in the COVID, uh, COVID I don't think it's, I think it's premature, I'm not taking any victory laps yet, but so far um, we've had global, global uh, challenges and global events. We've had whole industries go offline, airlines. We've seen collapses in the price of crude oil. We've seen um, the leisure industry, the restaurant industry, um, beef, you, you name it, very specific challenges. And so far, our financial markets have performed their essential function, our derivative markets uh, of price discovery and risk management through this. Um, and I think there's through the Dodd-Frank Act is largely responsible for, uh, you know, establishing um, robust safeguards um, and other parts of Dodd-Frank capital standards for financial institutions um, to, to build up the integrity and, and the confidence in our financial system. And I would totally agree, this is not just the the fact that we have uh, regulations in place, stronger regulations. But one reason I think the financial system is, is held up is that um, once the, uh, the act was passed and the CFTC's regulations were put into effect, uh, from my perspective, and then I, w I was in private practice in between after as general counsel and coming back to the commission, and, and uh, I, I saw it firsthand on the side of the industry, the commitment in the industry, in the market, to make it work. It, it was okay, people rolled up their sleeves and says, okay, you know, here's what we've got, let's, let's do it. And there was the commitment and the resources and the investment put in by the private sector into implementing those reforms. And once the private sector made the, the resource uh, and the leadership commitment and the cultural change to live with the new regulatory system, it became and has become business as usual. And one of the things that surpri has surprised me 10 years out some of the things that we thought were radical and appeared radical 10 years ago are now business as usual. And, and I think that has greatly uh, contributed to the stability of the, of the financial system. Yeah, I would just agree with you, Dan and Don, about, you know, that the, the industry has actually performed very well. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with some of the, the, the things that were put in by Dodd-Frank. And, you know, we saw during COVID-19 where, massive amounts of volume came onto lit markets um, in order to manage risk. And that, that was challenging uh, because there was a lot, of, a lot of volatility during that time. But for the most part, the markets held up well and um, you know, really that showed why they were the model for reform uh, you know, with, with the swaps markets. So uh, I think I would say the industry agrees with you that for the most part, uh, the markets worked well because of many of the provisions of Dodd-Frank. So I, I do want to ask if some of you, uh, both you and uh, Dan and Dawn were involved in specifics of Dodd-Frank, but if you had to talk about one provision of Dodd-Frank that really has exceeded your expectations, one that you feel pride about um, that uh, really has, has, has done its job, what, what provision would that be? And I'll start with Dawn. Uh, it's simple for me. I think the clearing mandate has, has, I wouldn't say outperformed the other elements of the reforms. There were you know, basically four components of Title VII, um, clearing mandate, execution mandate, reporting, and margin for uncleared swaps. And I think that the one that has probably had the smoothest path is the clearing mandate. And I'm not suggesting it was easy. It required a tremendous amount of effort on the part of both the infrastructure providers and the market participants to make it work in a way that was sensible. But I think that it was, in fact, the um, both the mandate and the willingness um, or the interest of market participants 
to see it through and in some cases voluntarily clear things that are not subject to a mandate. I think it's been a real success story. And Dan, what one provision for you has stood out? Well, that's the way. That's 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 a tough one to, to choose among um, uh, some things that were, were uh, very near and dear. Uh, obviously, the clearing mandate, uh, probably in the big in the big scheme of things, the clearing mandate um, is probably perhaps the most significant uh, contributor to um, systemic risk reduction. Uh, personally, um, some of the things that uh, I've, I've just really been um, uh, excited about the progress that, that's been made um, and, and continues uh, to, to uh, we continue to work on it is, is the trading mandate, uh, bringing transparency to these markets. We, these markets have been transformed uh, from um, non-transparent. Um, dealer-centric markets to uh, to lit markets uh, with with competition, bringing competition to the swaps markets, and this is something we're continuing to work on um, uh, uh, mo- most recently at the, at the commission. But we we, could, we continue to see uh, progress in that area. Um, I, I think the cross-border application of the act and the the um, the extent to which uh, the CFTC has become a, a global uh, leader and, and a critical uh, global um, particip- a participant in the global markets um, um, has really been gratifying too. The, uh, the transformation of this agency from a future-centric, largely domestic agency uh, now to one that has a, a leadership role in, in integrating uh, global markets has, has just been exciting to see. Um, and I think it's just worthwhile to think, think about what it was like 15 years ago and, and, and how far the agency has come in, in that regard. And finally, I would say uh, the um, significant um, boost to the CFTC's enforcement authorities that took place at the same time, our, our anti-manipulation authority and our spoofing authority, um, we've seen um, uh, particularly in the area of spoofing, that authority has really, really um, uh, helped uh, uh, us um, um, uh, prevent uh, uh, dis- disruptive conduct in our market. So th- those, are, those are the provisions that um, I, I'm, I, I'm just really ex- uh, excited about the progress that's been made. And Dan, I, I want to mention I was up visiting some of our, our members up in at Vanguard up in Valley Forge, uh, you know, not too long ago. And they were showing with pride the CEF markets that they trade in and um, how, how well that that has worked for some of the products that they, they trade. Um, so there's definitely end users that are benefiting from that trading mandate that the, the CFTC has implemented. I did want to mention uh, to jump to the cross-border question that you brought up. I think you know because of the lumpiness in which uh, post-crisis reforms were put into place. This, this, the United States with Dodd Frank was an early mover, and as a result of that, it was hard to uh, ensure that other jurisdictions were up to standards with uh, what had been. Uh, implemented with Dodd Frank, I'm just curious. Um, you know, w- with the the equivalence determinations that come with uh, as people have caught up to uh, the CFTC in the United States, you know, what is your assessment of the cross border elements of of Dodd Frank? And we this is coming. Um, you know, the week that the UK has indicated that uh, it will be recognized, its CCPs will be recognized. Uh, the EU announced this week that they plan to to recognize the UK as equivalent and the fact that the EU has, has modified some of its EMIR 2.2 uh, CCP uh, third, third country uh, regulations to make sure that uh, there is uh, a, a deference to home country regulators um, in that provision. So uh, Don, I'm just curious your sense of how Dodd-Frank has played in on the cross-border regulatory front. Uh, Well, I think today we are seeing, and it has taken 10 years, everything come full circle. I I think I always like to remind folks that um, we have to remember that even though Dodd-Frank and the CFTC's implementation occurred ahead of other jurisdictions, 
Title VII is premised on a globally agreed to um, set of principles that were developed in 2009 by the G20 prior to the passage of Dodd-Frank. And in responding to the financial crisis, I think that both the group of 20 nations and the U.S. Congress recognize that the derivatives markets are global, and that's just a simple fact that can't be ignored. And so while it's my view that we could have done a better job of coordinating the rollout, um, but today we really just need to focus on the original mission and refocus on that and acknowledge that even before the passage of Dodd-Frank, the G20 leaders stated a very clear responsibility that we should raise these standards together in order to avoid protectionism and regulatory arbitrage and, and frankly, market fragmentation. And we talk a lot about that in, in recent days. But so that is, that's what we must focus on today. We, we, um, the road was bumpy over the course of 10 years, but now that the major regulatory jurisdictions around the world have fulfilled their obligations to honor the G20 agreement, I think that we need to focus on how we coordinate um, among the regulatory bodies. Um, otherwise, I think we're going to end up spending our days on unproductive finger pointing rather than coordinated oversight. And, and that simply can't be the outcome that was intended. And, and Dawn, before I turn to Dan, I you lead the Global Markets Advisory Committee of the CFTC and oftentimes uh, are the representative uh, for uh, the CFTC at IOSCO events. Uh, do you get a sense that, um, you know, the saber rattling that we might see at the executive level of certain nations, is that translating down to the regulatory level or are, are we getting better of how we work together and, and, and talk through these issues? So my, my impression is that in most bilateral engagements, there's far less rhetoric surrounding the differences between the various jurisdictions. And by bilateral, I mean, when I sit face-to-face -face with a counterpart in, in another regulatory jurisdiction. Um, I've had really favorable responses to concerns I've raised, and, and I've listened to their concerns. I, I would say that in even in the large standard-setting bodies, sometimes there are differences of opinion, and you know there are often, I think oftentimes, those differences of opinion aren't with regard to the policy outcome. They're with regard to how each individual jurisdiction did it at a different on a different time frame and and there are some hurt feelings if you will about the way certain jurisdictions applied their force in in other countries and and, and that's not unique to what we've heard most recently is this discussion between Europe and the United States i think there are other jurisdictions who would like to now have their contribution be recognized, even though their contribution was made somewhat after the United States, perhaps. And Dan, you were general counsel at the CFTC when a lot of this was being implemented ahead of other jurisdictions. And so what's your view of, of how the cross-border and the recognition systems have come into place uh, since that time? When we when we uh, did the uh, uh, cross border guidance, uh, there there was a lot of pushback on the guidance at that time um, as overreaching uh, U U.S. jurisdiction, and I and I think um, par partially that was due to the scope of, of what uh, we we said back then, and partially it was due to the the uh, fact that we were first out. It, it was always recognized. It's it's baked into the. Uh, the 2013 guidance, uh, which the commission is now uh, has a proposal to finalize uh, to put into uh, into a regulatory form, um, that there would be substituted compliance, and that as other jurisdictions caught up uh, to to the U.S., that there would be a recognition um, of those other jurisdictions' regulatory regime as they applied to uh, U.S. activity conducted overseas. Um, it, it did. It did cause uh, issues at the time with other jurisdictions that essentially U.S. law would be applying uh, extraterritorially. Um, but I think the concept always was, and we've seen it implemented uh, over the years, that uh, as more jurisdictions came online, uh, that would be recognized. 
from where from where I sit, um, I, I think that the financial system, the global financial system, has remained uh, productively working together to towards integration and harmony. It's not without bumps. It's not without you know conflicts and stresses. Any multilateral um, um, endeavor will be, but largely a lot of the conflict that we're seeing in other uh, areas and fragmentation globally uh, and breakdowns of international relations in many other areas have not occurred in the financial system. Um, and, and I think that's a testament to the commitment that there's always been from day one to working towards international harmonization. Well, let's turn a little bit to the, the clearing mandate and to CCPs in particular. And I think the G20, uh, when it came together, in 2009 said that, you know, in order to address some of these, these concerns with counterparty risks that we want to put a lot of these over the counter products into clearing houses and allow that to help mitigate the risk by bringing more transparency, more collateralized uh, trading into those, those entities. Uh, and then there are those critics that say that you're putting more eggs into one basket. Um, I think it was Mark Twain that said, you know, if you put all your eggs in one basket, watch that basket very closely. I, I'm slaughtering Mark Twain, apologies. But um, so th this is, uh, you know, a concern by some that we've put all our risk into one place um, and it may be the next too big to fail. You know, we were trying to eliminate too big to fail. And we may have created another too big to fail. What's your assessment of those critics? And I'll start with Dan. Well, I think the concern um, about the, the clearing mandate, I think the clearing mandate overall, it, it's better to have the centralized risk uh, managed through a central counterparty uh, with initial and variation margin than the bilateral credit um, uh, structure that we, ha we had prior to Dodd-Frank. So I think overall having central counterparties um, is... Um, is the way to go, and that that's been successful. What concerns me about where it is is the uh, in the swaps market. It's a pro it's an issue in the futures market too. The, the declining number of intermediaries of of, of F FCMs, but I, but we're still up at sixty something or seventy something in the number of FCMs on the future side. But we're basically down to five or six. Um, large uh, FCMs who are clearing the swap clearing on the swap side and so we have a very high concentration of of clearing members supporting this this clearing and we don't have the mutualization the wide mutualization of risk that um, does the most for risk reduction so uh, the clearing mandate uh, absolutely I believe is successful and supported but the fact that we have so few uh, clearing members on the swap side um, um, and the concentration of risk ultimately that they bear um, is is a is a real concern. And do you have any initial thoughts of why the numbers have come down? I mean, some of it is technology and infrastructure is expensive, and you got to put more volume through the system, and it just it, you know you can't just be doing this. Yeah, casually. <laughs> this this requires a lot of regulatory knowledge, a lot of technological knowledge, a lot of capital behind it. Um, so, if you you have thoughts of what what we can be doing to help bring up those numbers, or, or at least eliminate the shrinkage. Yes. So, the ex excellent question. So, those factors are all present, and then and then in in a uh, zero or even negative interest rate environment, uh, where's, the, where's the return on the investment in these activities and number of the firms that, that do it um, tell, tell us that they're not doing it because they're making money, they're doing it for relationship reasons and exit market, but it's not a, you know, they're telling us it's not a big money maker and that's why given all the barriers to entry that you identified, it's difficult to get new entrants into the market. Um, so. It's what we can do with the CFTC is remove unnecessary regulatory barriers. Um, that's not going to be the solution to this, uh, ensuring that there's no um, undue regulatory barriers. Uh, that's part of the, part of the uh, hopefully alleviate um, some of the stresses on on the FCMs on on that side on in, in 
both sides, you know, futures as, as well as swaps. But uh, there's other external factors that are that are beyond our control um, in terms of uh, whether you can have a successful business. And, and Don, your thoughts on, on clearinghouses? You know, I, I think most people who came through the financial crisis saw how well they worked um, and saw, saw this as an opportunity to clean up some other markets where there was counterparty risk. But I, what's your assessment of whether we've created the next too big to fail? Yeah, so I have to tell you, I had many colleagues in the Senate in 2009 and 2010 who were very fearful of exactly what you described, that we were creating the next too big to fail by just simply moving the risk from from a, you know, a bilateral environment to a centralized environment. And, and so I think this was a well-debated outgrowth of the reforms and, and quite apparent even a decade ago when Dodd-Frank was being developed. But nonetheless, clearinghouses were determined to be worthy of um, contributing to the solution, and, and in particular, the counterparty credit risk mitigation that, that was required in, during the crisis. And so I, I, will, I would have to say that I am pleased that recent events are perhaps now the most significant test since the Dodd-Frank clearing requirements took effect. And by recent events, I mean the market volatility in the midst of COVID-19. And while I acknowledge that the margin calls in the face of that volatility were uncomfortable for many, the infrastructure and its function to reducing that counterparty credit risk has proven up to the task. And I think that it is a, um, a good example of a success story, frankly. Um, but I would agree with Commissioner Berkovitz that those who support that infrastructure need to, we need to be sensitive to the fact that, that they are there, there are fewer of them, and by that I mean clearing members. And I, I spoke to this recently with another group, and I said, you know, sometimes we were so anxious to work through ensuring that the system was safer, and, and we all have an obligation to make sure the financial system is safer than it was in two thousand seven and two thousand six. But we have to do so with an eye towards ensuring that the system safeguards are not introducing more risk into the markets. Because if, this, if the markets aren't functioning in the way they were intended, and in our case, to help people mitigate their risk, if the markets can't function, then the system being safe is all good and fine. But we need to make sure the system is safe for the intended beneficiaries. In our, in our case, those are end users who use the derivatives market to manage the risk. And that's a very difficult thing to determine where that line is. And I, yeah. I, I'm glad that the two of you are in the roles you are because you're both very bright with great experiences that can help us to draw that line between safety and, and sometimes making sure the markets are working properly. So I, I do want to ask you, you both were part of that inner circle of people who were involved in the passage of this historic legislation. Um, I know I have stories of the financial crisis that I, I like to tell after a couple glasses of wine. I would assume that you also have memorable insider stories that sticks out from that time. Um, and I'm just wondering if you'd be willing to share one with our listeners. And Dawn, I'll start with you. Uh, sure. Thanks, Walt. It's hard to narrow it down to just one. There were a lot of stories over the course of two years. Um, but um, I, I think, you know, at the time, most folks were aware that um, there was a failed attempt to design a bipartisan ag committee Title VII product in the Senate, That meaning that Republicans and Democrats had spent a considerable amount of time trying to arrive at a consensus. And it was assumed that when those negotiations fell apart, so did the spirit of the Ag Committee. Um, and admittedly, I was disappointed when that happened, um, I, but I don't know that I have ever told anyone that things fell apart over a weekend. And on the following Monday, after we parted ways with our Democratic colleagues, Senator Blanche Lincoln, who was the Democratic chairman of the committee at the time, reached out, um, and she didn't reach out to apologize or to say that she was sorry we'd had to part ways. She reached out to thank me for my efforts and the contributions that I had made to the outcome. And she acknowledged 
that it was unlikely that my boss at the time would be able to support the legislation, but nonetheless, that they, they really appreciated our input into the process and that she thought it, it would be made a better product as a result. And on the exact same day, my counterpart on the um, Ag Committee staff who worked for the Democrats, so Pat McCarty, showed up at my desk with a, a peace offering of Dr. Pepper and some form of peanut butter chocolate candy. So by this point, we'd spent enough time together that he knew exactly what would make me feel better, <laughs> even if it was only for a short time before I had to go work on writing a Republican alternative to their their document. But yeah, so that was a story I think most people are unaware of. Well, Senator Blanche Lincoln is a class act, and um, I think that shows some of that. So, uh, and Dan, your 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 story that you can share. Well, my story it's it's um, somewhat non-substantive about Dot Frank, but uh, my my hobby is uh, photography, and uh, I have you know nice expensive camera, whatever. But this uh, we it was the night of the conference in Dodd Frank. It was um, a, a night in July when we had the all-night conference in the Senate Dirksen, uh, Dirksen Senate office building. And uh, we started off at, um, um, I don't know, three or four in the afternoon one day, and we went all night. And they were going to finish that conference uh, that, that night no matter what. And it was in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, and it was about 5.30 in the morning, and the conferees were just about um, to vote, take the final vote on the passage. And so they were all sitting. The House members were all on one side, uh, led by Barney Frank, and the senators were on the other side of the conference room with uh, Senator uh, Chris Dodd. And I had my BlackBerry with me. Okay, this was the CFTC BlackBerry. And this is before, well, they may have had iPhones back then. I guess iPhones came out in 2007, but we had Blackberries. And believe it or not, the Blackberry had a camera on it. And I think, you know, I've got like a camera with tens of megapixels. And I think the Blackberry camera had something like, was in the K megapixels. It was like 8,000, you know, 8K pixels or something like that. It was minuscule camera. And I took a, a few pictures of the conferees around the table. And in my office is the CF, at the CFTC uh, is that picture blown up. And frankly, with that really, really lousy BlackBerry camera, it's probably one of the best pictures I've ever taken in, in um, I've ever taken. And it, I think it's probably because of the low resolution of the BlackBerry camera is the lights in that Dirksen hearing room have this eerie glow to them. <laughs> I think it's because I got really poor resolution. But it was at 5.30 in the morning, so you look at the picture, and it looks like it's like at 5.30 morning. It captures the mood with the blary lights, like you've been in a Las Vegas casino all night. And I've blown that up. And I can send it to you. Um, uh, I could send you a copy of the photo, but just goes to show that, you know, you can have the most expensive camera in the world or the cheapest camera in the world, and it's all on what you're taking a picture of. So that's my that's my Dodd-Frank story. I've got that photo framed in my office at the CFTC. It's one of the best photos I've taken at 5.30 in the morning. The final, and just I would the final test, photo. I just wanted to interject a little bit. Dan, I've seen the photo. And to be honest, there is no better depiction of the exhaustion that right. um, was, at, was, was happening at the end of Dodd-Frank. And, and, and that picture sums up the entire mm -hmm. conference quite nicely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we'll send it to us and it'll be the picture for this podcast. We will use it. So that's wonderful. Great. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I, I know that um, you spent time in the, both of you working and in in the, these stories are fantastic. Um, but I want to sort of to, to fast forward to present day and how this experience has helped your current role. Um, you guys were in the bunker together during Dodd-Frank you know, fast forward 10 years and you guys are still working together on important matters before the commission. So how, how has that experience helped your current, your current role, Dawn? Um, well, I, I would just say, you just never know where your journey is going to take you. Um, you know, I started uh, not on Capitol Hill, but my first job on Capitol Hill enabled me to see the pendulum swinging far to one side um, in that I worked for then-Senate 
banking committee chairman. I was his ag policy staffer, not his banking policy staffer, but this was um, at the turn of the century, and it provided me in, a view into the development of the legislation that actually prohibited the CFTC from regulating over-the-counter swaps. Um, and then a decade later, I was working on Senate Ag Committee, and uh, we completely reversed course and directed the CFTC to oversee some of those same swaps. And you know, now it's another decade has passed, and another crisis has emerged, and once again, we have to think about things a little differently to ensure the CFTC can adjust to our current circumstances. But, you know, as, as I described, even before the crisis, I had worked with Commissioner Berkowitz before. And so in each of these events where there's been a pendulum swinging from one, one direction to the other, I think that, you know, Dan and I've been able to, I hope, find common ground in a way that is um, a little bit more settled and, and, and more middle ground, if you will. And I actually think that's where the CFTC is right now. There are five of us. Everyone's working to balance and refine those things that were put in place 10 years ago without allowing the pendulum to swing too far in one direction or the other, because I think our industry has undergone 20 years of pendulum swinging. And it's it's really incumbent upon us to try and you know, hold the line on some things, but also refine things where we need to, to make sure that they're working the way they were intended. And I'm very happy to, that I get to do it with Commissioner Berkowitz. And Dan, how, how has that experience helped with your current role? Well, uh, and I, I would agree. I would agree with everything that Don, Don, Don just said. And, um, Gives you a certain seeing things go around and come around. Um, you you realize that um, not everything is an existential crisis. Well, not everything is an existential crisis that you have to like recreate. Recreate. You can build. You can build on the past. Learn. Learn from the past. And I and I think one of the things that I find um, uh, the progress that w- that we've made. For the past decade, from where we are, were to where we are today, um, this is going to sound a little bit corny, but uh, it, it's really one thing I take away from it um, that the CFTC we're we're in a time now where there's extreme partisanship and and um, division in the country um, and globally. But one area where it has we've been able to work together and work together productively. We all have a common goal. We may not always agree on the path to get there, but we know how to, and we can work with each other, and we do work with each other um, to, to get there in a productive way, um, people with diverse viewpoints. And when there's so much cynicism and discernment and, and, and division, I, I think if you look what's happened at the, at the CFTC over the years, um, We've we've really been able to um, haven't haven't been um, uh, affected nearly uh, as much as other areas. And that if people want to see an area of successful government, I've been in the majority uh, when I was general counsel. You know, I was on the I wasn't on the commission, but I was you know I was working for the chairman, um, uh, taking a lot of direction from the chairman and on the majority side. And now I'm a minority commissioner. And it's really an agency where people work together. I've seen it from both sides, people working together constructively towards a common objective. And folks like yourself, Walt, I know you, you brought that attitude. It's, it's a tradition at the CFTC. And working with folks like you and, and Dawn and, and, and my colleagues currently on the commission, no matter what side of the aisle that we're on, we have different views. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But we learn from each other and we do it in a constructive way. And ultimately, the product is a better one for the markets and for the American people. And that's those of us who go into public service or who like public service, I mean, that's what it's all about and that we can contribute to the strengthening of that in, in a constructive way. And I, I, it's a great story to tell. And I just wish, you know, that, that more people in the country were, are aware that there are successes in government um, like, like the CFTC. It's, I don't want to, I say it's all the CFTC, as I said at the beginning of the industry. We have an industry that was committed to implementing these reforms. So um, it's just been, for me, it's been very productive. Um, and I enjoyed working with, with Dawn and, 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 and 
and this, and you, Walt, and, and, and all the folks um, past and present on the commission. Well, Dan, that I think is a great way to end uh, today's conversation. I just, I am in complete agreement with both you and Dawn about how there is a constructive roll up your sleeves, bipartisan attitude within the whole industry uh, to get things done. And I just want to tell both of you how grateful I am that you are both commissioners at this time that, you know, serving the public, you're dedicated. And I think Dawn said, you're making our market safer. So I just want to thank both of you for being here today and sitting down with us for our conversation about Dodd-Frank. And we appreciate everything you do in a, as a public servant uh, to the United States. So thank you, Dawn. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thanks, Walt. Well, thank you for that great conversation. We appreciate your time and willingness to, to talk about all these things. And I appreciate our audience for listening. As always, we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at fiaspeaks at fia.org. And thank you for listening. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at fiaspeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019, FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.